We're going to look at the Bible now, okay? We do this every week. We believe the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So I encourage you to pull out your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles from under the chairs. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to keep that. Uh, We think there's something really sweet and beautiful about reading a paper Bible, although a lot of us have digital Bibles as well now. Something good about really turning page to page and knowing where everything falls in this book. We're going to be in Proverbs. It's right in the middle. We're in the series in Proverbs that we've subtitled Scandalous Wisdom. Scandalous Wisdom. If you're turning in the Black Bibles, it's around page 527 in the Black Bibles. We're entering into chapter 2 as we've uh, titled the series Scandalous Wisdom. The idea is as we grow in wisdom, we're going to obey Jesus, we're going to listen to his word, and what's going to happen is we're going to look weirder and weirder in our culture. It's going to be scandalous. It's going to be weird and confusing to the world around us, and that's okay. Because even as we grow more strange to our culture, uh, Jesus promises us that as we become like him, we'll actually be a blessing to our culture. As he's given grace to us, we'll be able to give grace to those around us. And so that's the, the journey we're engaging on here. As we enter into chapter two, it's called Desperately Seek Wisdom. That's the main charge, I think, for chapter two. It's chapter two, verses one through 22, Desperately seek wisdom. Um, I've owned a lot of cars over the years. I've been married almost 29 years, raised three children. I hadn't fully done the math, but I think that means like one to 200 cars. I don't know. I can't add it up at this point, but a lot of used cars. I'm not a mechanic. I don't know a whole lot about cars, but I have learned some basics, right? Like if you run out of gas, the car stops moving. As embarrassing as that is, you can call a friend, get some gas, and it will move again. There's something very different that happens when you run out of oil, right? If you run out of oil, the car dies. It it cannot be resurrected. And so you have to desperately maintain oil levels at the proper level in your car if you want it to work. I was talking with our intern, Chris Johnson, about this, and he's a young driver. You know, he's only 20 years old, and he's been just driving for a few years, and so his dad taught him very carefully, you've got to maintain the oil level. And he's done a really good job with this. He's always regularly checked the oil in his car. He has a new-ish car, like it's pushing 100,000 miles, which is new to our family. And, and so he was telling me all these years he's been checking the oil, it's never been low. But his dad told him to do it. So he's been doing it and doing it and doing it. And finally, a couple of weeks ago, he was like, the oil was actually low. And so I had to come to my dad. I was like, what do I do? I know, you know, it needs oil. What happens, right? So his dad was like, well, you know, you need to add some oil. It's probably getting older, starting to burn some oil now. And he kind of explained how to do it and was like, but careful, don't do this and don't do that, but do it this way. And he's like, I was a little confused. So I went out and I got the manual, right? He he read the manual and it it made it a little more clear because it had diagrams and it had pictures of how this worked and where to put the oil in. And, And so we were just talking about how sometimes you can get the verbal explanation. This is very important. You know, don't mess this up. It'll blow up everything. And then you can get like a diagram, a model that kind of helps make it more clear. This text is, is kind of like that. The, the main punch is desperately seek wisdom. Without it, you will die. But the text is actually quite sophisticated. The Hebrew poetry is quite intricate. It's kind of like a, a really intricate wiring diagram. It'd be like a, like a map of how the engine is built, right? And so we're going to try to kind of focus in on the main things. It's going to show us this flow of, of how wisdom actually works in our life, how we receive it, and then how it changes our heart. And then it flows out and starts to change our behavior and then change the world 
around us. We've got kind of a flow of movement here of wisdom literature, um, quite intricate, as I said, uh, the way you can kind of break it down, you could break it into two parts or six parts or nine parts, you know, kind of depending on which Hebrew scholar you're following. Y'all know me, I'm just going to do three parts, okay? That's what I like, three feels, that's how I like to cut the stakes. We're going to cut it into three parts, but let's read it first. It's Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 22. Proverbs 2, 1 through 22. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of the uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. As I said, we believe that God is speaking to us through his word We also believe we need his Holy Spirit to help us to to listen and to pay attention. I'm going to pray that his spirit would meet us in this time. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would be present with us and that we would um, be guarded against just an exchange of information, but, but we would be supernaturally changed by your spirit, that your spirit would come to us and dwell with us and open our ears and open our hearts. We pray that you would shape us by your wisdom that in your graciousness you would come and rebuild us and remake us so that we would hear and love and incline our hearts towards your wisdom. We ask this because you are gracious. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I I believe we've got a really intricate wire diagram. Uh, All the studying I was doing, there's just a lot of kind of this leads to this and this leads to this, and it's, it's really intricate. But I think we can break it down into like a, a simpler diagram of, of these three points. And so the first point I want us to see is that God is the source of wisdom. The second point that we'll see is that wisdom changes us from the hearts. So we're starting to see how it works through us. And then the third point is that wisdom takes new ground. Wisdom takes new ground. So God's the source of the wisdom. Wisdom changes us from the heart, and then wisdom takes new ground. So number one, God is the source of wisdom. We see this in verses 1 through 8. So Proverbs 2, 1 through 8, God is the source of wisdom. Starts off in verse 1, my son, if you receive my words, starting kind of passive, right? Like if you just open up and take it, that's good. If you receive my words, and then he adds a little depth to that, and treasure up 
my commandments, right? So then you're, you're like really holding on to them. Treasure up my commandments within you. And then making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. So now we've got like the sun is now leaning in, right? So you got a little more responsiveness on the part of the listener. Verse three, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Now we've got the sun feeling a little of that desperation, right? Desperately seeking wisdom. Oh God, I need your help. I need you. I need wisdom. I need you to teach me. This is the way of wisdom. First, we pay attention. First, we just, we'll use the church example. First, you just kind of show up like, oh, okay, I guess I should go to church. I don't know. Let's show up, right? And then you start to actually listen. Like, wait, maybe God has something to say to me. And then you start to bend in, right? And you start to incline yourself. Your heart starts to soften towards it. He goes on and says, if you seek it like silver, and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. If you seek it as treasure, here's the big question I want to think about with this point. What do we see as treasure? The command, I think for the whole chapter, is that we would desperately seek God's wisdom, that we would seek it like treasure, that we would look for it, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if, and if we do, he will fill us up. But sometimes we're seeking other things, right? Sometimes we're looking for other treasure. We're looking in other places besides God himself. God is the source of wisdom. But we often look inside ourselves. I grabbed a picture of someone with a metal detector. Man, when I was a kid, I wanted so desperately to have a metal detector, right? Because I was convinced the greatest treasures in the world were buried under the ground. I don't know where I got that idea. Maybe I got that from comic books or cartoons or something. But I thought if I could just have a metal detector, then I will have treasure. Then I will be secure. Then I'll have what I want. Then I'll be okay, right? So as a five-year-old, I asked my parents, parents, can I have a metal detector? Guess what they said? No, that's stupid, right? (laughs) I think it was too expensive in the 70s. They're probably cheaper now. I actually started Googling a little bit. I think you can like build one. I don't know. I didn't have time to chase that rabbit hole. But there's different ways that we look for treasure, right? He's saying we should be looking for the treasure of wisdom. And God is the source. Where are you searching? I often search man's wisdom. I often search my own problem-solving skills, right? my own ability to figure things out. But God calls me back to himself and says, no, God is the source of wisdom. I should seek him. A diagnostic question would be, what what are the things that we are worrying about? What are the things that we are staying up late searching out? What are the things that we're burning calories for? Where are you searching? What are you desperately seeking? Here, we're charged to desperately seek God and his wisdom. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We have to pause here and talk again about the fear of the Lord, right? We introduced this in the first week. The fear of the Lord is a confusing phrase for us because it sounds um, like running away. The scripture is clear that there's like a right kind of fear and a wrong kind of fear. Adam and Eve had the wrong kind of fear where it was only shame no grace. It was only a recognition of their brokenness, and so God was pure terror. But in the gospel, there's this kind of different fear that shapes itself into love and worship and awe. 
We know this in some experiences in life. Um, fear, the word in Hebrew, and, and a lot of Hebrew words are, are very like physical, visceral kind of words, right? So anger, fear, a lot of these languages, a lot of these words in Hebrew has kind of a physical embodiment to it. So fear is, is like the act of trembling or having goosebumps or, or just being shocked at something, right? So most of us have known that experience of like the shock of running away, right? And the shock of this is so glorious. You, God, are so good. It's like the goosebumps of, of ecstasy instead of the goosebumps of terror, right? Or tears of joy instead of the tears just of sadness. Or the trembling of awe instead of the trembling of I'm about to die. And we can only know that kind of fear, that kind of awe and reverence and amazement at God as we seek him as the true source. We don't find it by going around him, going somewhere else, searching in philosophy, searching some other spot, using a metal detector and looking over here. No, we go straight to the source. We go to God himself. If we seek him, we will find him, we are promised. He goes on in verse 6 and says, For the Lord gives wisdom. For the Lord gives wisdom. He's the source. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. God is the source. And as we seek the source, there will be a protection. There will be a a guarding. There will be a safety we can find only in him. We fear him more than anything else. It's a dangerous world, but there's safety in fearing the Lord and seeking the Lord as the true source of wisdom. Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in the 1800s, and he had an interesting quote about this. The idea of faith and God being the source of faith, or maybe better said, the object of faith. Uh, Spurgeon says this, where do we find the secret strength of faith? It lies in the food on which it feeds. Faith is fixed on the promise of God and sees it as an extension of the great heart of God himself. Faith says, my God could not have given this promise without love and grace, therefore it will be fulfilled. Faith thinks more about who gave the promise than about the promise itself. Faith is fixated on the object of faith. Faith also remembers why the promise was given, namely for God's glory. Faith feels perfectly sure that God's glory is safe. He will never let the luster on his crown become tarnished. So his promise to love us, to care for us, that promise must stand. Spurgeon is trying to get at this idea that often as Christians, we're too obsessed with the quality of our faith and we're not obsessed enough with the object of our faith. Is it about me and how faithy I am? How much have you faithed today? That's not the question. The question is, are you staring at God? Is he the object of your faith? Is he your only hope? Are you desperate for him? Are you hungering and thirsting for his righteousness? If you are, you will be filled. And that is a promise. We've talked about the genre of the Proverbs can be a little confusing because Proverbs often have this, this is the way life normally works kind of stuff. These these kind of typical promises of how things normally go. And then there's absolute promises of, of security in God himself, right? And Proverbs really has both included in it. And so here we've got the mingling of these promises and Proverbs. 
you will generally be guarded. Life will generally go well as you walk with God, but life will permanently be secure if you run to him for safety. And that's a promise. There's an interesting book that uh, I was reading the other day. It's, it's like a quote of a quote of a quote. I, I almost got lost trying to figure out who quoted it. So I was reading Waltke, quoting Simone Weil, quoting I. Murdoch. I think Murdoch wrote this. But he was saying that we sometimes think that real change in our life comes about through the exercise of the will. Murdoch says this, change of being, metanoia, that's a Greek word for repentance. So repentance, turning from our old way, change is not brought about by straining and willpower, but a long, deep process of unselfing. Unselfing. Why did did that quote stand out to me? What do you think? Because we currently live in the greatest overwhelming cult of selfishness that our civilization has ever seen. We are being screamed at every day that the only source of happiness is our self. Now, I want to be clear. Once we found rest in Jesus, we have great freedom to get to know the quirks of ourself, right? The New Testament talks about we're all unique. We all have different gifts. That is all true. It can be really helpful to know our own differences, right? And that can be a good and wonderful thing, but, but that's not the source of wisdom. And that's not the source of our safety. God is the source. So we have to engage in this process of unselfing. When the world is saying, no, look deeper in yourself. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. Get to know yourself. Find yourself. God says, find me. The creature can't know who she is until she sees the creator. We're lost if we're disconnected from him. If we go down the rabbit hole of the cult of self, we're just replaying the sin of Adam and Eve. We're saying, yeah, I want your stuff, but I don't want you, God. Get out of here. I want to be like God. I want to be my own God. I want to be independent. It doesn't work. Human beings don't function independent from God. God is a source of wisdom, and we have to run to him. How do we apply this? Um, Skeptics. Skeptics. This is how you seek God as a source. You prioritize saving faith. Nothing else is going to fall into place until you realize that only God can forgive your sins. And you seek him and his wisdom of salvation. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He took our sins upon himself. He gives us resurrection life. He's our only hope. So if you're skeptic, I want to challenge you to think about all the other ways you think you will be saved. Don't assume that you have a posture of neutrality. None of us are neutral. We're all believing in something. What are you believing in? I want to plead with you that Jesus is the one that you should believe in. So if you're skeptic, prioritize the wisdom of saving faith. Matthew 5 says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. Matthew 6 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, what about believers? Some of us have already come to faith in Jesus. We need to keep growing in that, right? Like we need to get up every day and recommit to trusting him. We need to prioritize the wisdom of sanctifying faith. The wisdom of a God who's shaping us day after day with his word, coming back to him day after day saying, yeah, I need you. Thank you for including me in your family. Thank you for adopting me. Thank you for saving me, but I still need you to shape me and sand off those rough edges. And so we want to prioritize listening to his word, going back to God again and again as the source, not self, but God unselfing and seeing God as the source 
of our faith as the source of our wisdom. And we find that primarily through listening to God through Scripture. Uh, we study the Scriptures. We memorize Scriptures. We, we read the Scriptures. We make sense of the story. And we pray. Pray is talking to God. So we pray and talk to God. We read the Scriptures, meditate on the Scriptures, get to know the Scriptures. And as we do that, we're prioritizing His, his wisdom and we're making sure that we're running to the source of wisdom. The second point that we see is that wisdom then changes us from the heart. As we incline, as we lean in, as we start calling out to wisdom, as we seek it like treasure and we grab hold of what God has for us, it begins to guard us and change us. It begins to come into our heart. So we see this in verses 9 through 15, starting in verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. Our culture has been debating this for many years now. I want to encourage you, number one, there is no silver bullet of settling what is righteousness and equity in every good path, politically or philosophically. There's not, there's not an answer I can give you just, oh, just read this book and then you'll have it solved. Then you'll know which one's right, who's wrong. You'll have it all figured out. It's a process of growth, of sanctification. And we believe that this book is the source of that wisdom. So as you actually change and grow, beginning to apply what you've learned here, that's when you'll understand what equity and justice is. It's not just like, oh, this political party, that sounds good. All right, we're in, we're done, finished, silver bullet. No, it's a process of growth and we learn from this book. And we all have to bow before God and his leadership and say, okay, you're the one with the wisdom. I'm not the one with wisdom. As we learn from his word, then he teaches us. Then we'll begin to understand righteousness and justice and equity in every good path. He goes on and says, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. This was one of the most important realizations of my life. When I was 17 years old, I thought I'd been a Christian for years, and I realized that Christians were supposed to love God. Did you know that? (laughs) It says here that wisdom comes into our heart and knowledge is pleasant to our soul. What that means is we actually see God as pleasant. We see God's truth as pleasant. We actually love him. We want him in our life. We're not just running. I just wanted some kind of insurance that allowed me the freedom to live my life as I wanted to, right? (laughs) Once I realized that I didn't actually love God, it broke me and it changed me. It started to make me recognize that there really was a separation there that I didn't fully understand. And then I needed him to heal that gap, to bring me into his family. I needed to trust him to fix that problem. Wisdom will come into your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. It's beginning to describe how this changes us in our relationships with other people. There really are paths of of crookedness and and evil. Um, That's not just like an outmoded traditionalist view. It's really true. There are things you can do in life that are good and they lead to human flourishing. And there are things you can do in life that are bad and they break you and they break the people around you. Many of you have experienced this firsthand, both at your own uh, mistakes, but also 
the sins that other people have committed against you. A lot of us know what that's like to be hurt by other people's sinful choices. Our choices are real and they matter. And here we're told that as we take wisdom into our heart, that's what actually changes our behavior. It's not change your behavior and then God will give you a new heart. It says you listen to him and yield to him and trust him. That's how he changes you. And that's more and more what we want to understand is how as we trust him, as we see him as good, as we see him as pleasant to our souls, that's when he delivers us, rescues us from the way of evil. So we see kind of a flow here again, wire diagram, flow chart. We've got understanding God's word. It begins to come into our heart. We see it as pleasant to our own soul. We begin to to love him. And as we love him, that truth guards us and shapes us and begins to deliver us from the way of evil. I was thinking the word deliver, in the Bible, deliver generally means rescue. But in our world, I'm afraid that we hear deliver like Amazon man delivers a package, right? So it might be better to think rescue, right? Like you're in chains and he rescues rescues you. He he pulls you out of the pit is, is some of the language in the Psalms. I grabbed a picture of someone with handcuffs on and I just wanted us to think about, like, what are the things that, that bind us? Uh, what are the besetting sins that just have us trapped where we're struggling, where we keep making the same mistakes over and over again? We need to confess those to God, and we, don't, we need to call on him to set us free, and he will deliver us from the way of evil. This wisdom changing us from the heart process is summed up pretty well in the New Testament in Colossians and Ephesians with putting off and putting on. Putting off and putting on. And here you've got both sides of the Christian discipleship process. And kind of depending on your personality or or what Christians you've run with, you've probably heard one of these more than the other. So putting off and putting on. Putting off is like, stop it, okay? It's killing you. Stop doing that. You're like, Thanks, Dave. If I could have stopped this, I would a long time ago, right? So that's part of it. We got to stop doing stupid things. But the other side is putting on. We put on Christ. We recognize the identity of being beloved children of God, of his grace that saves us, even though we couldn't put off our sins, even though we continue to fail and continue to do stupid things. God loved us anyway. He forgave us in Christ. He took our sins upon himself. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The gospel of grace is, is too good to not be true. And the process of change is being renewed in your wonder of having a heart that is amazed at God loving you. That, that should be more and more pleasant to our soul every day. What? God, you still love me? You're still gracious to me? That should blow your mind. That should be pleasant to your soul. And then we should stop doing the stupid things that are killing us, Right? Now, here's the thing. I think a lot of times we try to stop stuff. We try to stop dangerous behaviors. We struggle with that. And we think, I know what I'll do is I'll just keep this secret because I won't be accepted by other people. God's going to be mad at me until I get this cleaned up. My friends are going to be disappointed in me until I get this cleaned up. And we just, we just keep it our own little secret of shame. It actually compounds and metastasizes and grows when we do that. The, the Christian call is to confess it, to bring it out into the light, right? To be a Christian is to admit, I am broken, I need help. 
And that's both a theological posture and a social posture, right? So 1 John 1 says, we don't lie about our sins. We confess them to God and we ask him to save us. God save me, right? We pray, we ask God for his help. And then James 5 says, we also confess it to our brothers and sisters. Friend, help me out, hold me accountable, remind me, pray for me, walk with me, be there with me, right? So we don't fix these things on our own. God saves us by his grace. He's the one that delivers us. He's the one that shapes us and changes us and makes us more like Jesus, but he also sends us each other. He places us in a family where we need other people to lock arms with us and help us in this journey as we stumble and get up and stumble and get up. So we've got this process of putting off and putting on. We put off old habits. We put on our identity in Christ. Put on our identity in Christ. We put off our old habits. We remember that God loves us no matter what. And then we stumble forward trying to put away these old habits, but we do that in community. We always talk about joining a group. That, that's centrally what a group is for, helping us to obey Jesus, helping us to remind each other that Jesus actually loves us, even though we don't deserve it. He loves us because he's good, because he's gracious, and that inclines our heart back towards him again. We have specific celebrate recovery groups that help people with addiction issues. We have women's groups. We have a new men's group that's starting tonight, a six-week men's group just on what it means to be a man and walk with God that's going to be here uh, for the next six weeks. We have uh, just all kinds of mixed small groups that you can join. You can email the office if you want to get involved in one of those. And as we say all the time, you can just find a Christian friend and and y'all can work on these things together. But we need to take next steps to allow wisdom to change us from the heart, to, to be inclined to his goodness and then walk that out in reality as he delivers us from the way of evil. The last point is that wisdom takes new ground. As wisdom works through our heart, changes our opinion of who God is, of his kindness to us in Christ, it begins to change our behavior more and more. So we just saw those couple of verses about it delivering us from the the men of evil, the way of evil, begins to put us on the straight path. Gives us some other pictures here in verses 16 through 22 about how wisdom takes new ground, both morally and culturally, as it works its way out into society. So verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Uh, We said this, uh, I think it was just last week, right? Wisdom cries out. It's a woman there. Repeatedly, we've got the female motif throughout Proverbs. Good women, bad women. He's not picking on women either positively or negatively, right? Uh, Women, you know, there's, there's good versions of you and bad versions of you, right? And he's using that as an image to say, man, there's, there's the woman of wisdom. And then there's the woman of desire uh, and adultery, the forbidden woman, He's saying, as you actually begin to walk with Jesus, as you actually begin to listen to his wisdom, he changes you and frees you from this woman and bonds you to the other woman, the woman of wisdom. You'll be delivered from the forbidden woman. You'll begin to take new ground morally. You'll begin to put aside these old sins. Then he goes on in verse 20, says, so you'll walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous for the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Now he's talking here primarily of this picture of how the Old Testament people of Israel were told that that this is your calling, right? To literally occupy this land to give a picture of what God is like, 
of what it looks like to live in, in joy and freedom and to walk with God and to obey him. And so there was this reality of real land that they were to take over. And, and as they disobeyed God, and as they turned from him, they were literally rooted out of the land. They were torn from it. And God was trying to show a, a bigger picture. Hebrews makes it real clear that we will take the land as we trust Jesus by faith. And the land is the rest of knowing that we've been adopted by God, that we found our true home in him. So Hebrews 4 says that's, that's the land that we've arrived at through faith in Christ. And so there's this Old Testament picture that's foreshadowing this deeper reality that we know now we've arrived at the land, we've come home. You ever been on a long trip and you just wanted to get back into your own bed? You were aching, you were tired. Hebrews 4 says we've, we've made it home in Jesus we rest from our works in him. We've entered into the promised land in him. Now, as we think about taking new ground, as we throw off immorality, as we start to occupy the land, quote unquote, there are pictures throughout Christian history uh, that have been competing pictures of what it looks like to impact the culture for Jesus. And so again, I think Hebrews 4 is clear that the, the really deep and beautiful way of occupying the land, so to speak, is knowing Jesus has forgiven you of his sins and finding ultimate rest in him, which frees you and me to impact our family and our world for Christ. Sometimes we get so excited about impacting the country that we forget to just take ground in our own lives, right? And so I want you to follow the progression of how wisdom works. Wisdom works its way through your own heart, and then you begin to live in a new moral framework. Then you begin to be of, of some use to your family and your neighbors and the office that you work at. And then you can be of use to your city and your nation and your country. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't vote until you're morally pure, right? Like that's not what I'm saying. But I also just want to warn us of thinking, I'm going to change the world, but I'm not really going to walk with Jesus and deal with stuff in my own heart. It's a huge danger, and I just see it again and again. I think it's, it's really good to, to work out through the concentric circles of letting wisdom change us from the heart and then taking this new ground in our own sphere of life, right? Like, I'm going I'm to serve my family. I'm going to be a good neighbor. Then I'm going to be a good citizen of this city. Then I'm going to do really good work beyond that, right? We want to impact the world in these, these kind of layers, and I think God promises that we will. So I want to encourage you that, that wisdom does take new ground, both morally and culturally. But really the ultimate place of rest that we want to find is knowing Jesus personally. And as we know Jesus personally, then we're going to have freedom to impact the world culturally, to, to shape the city, the country, the world. I think the mustard seed parable of, of Jesus is a helpful one to think about this. I found a picture of a, a big tree. This is actually a Middle Eastern mustard tree. Now there are a couple of varieties of mustard. So uh, scientists and theologians debate over Jesus's mustard parable. Is he talking about this one or the other more common mustard that, that we know that we use in our French's mustard and everything? So there's two different kinds of mustard, right? Um, this one is, is huge though, and the seed is tiny. So this one would have made a really good parable if this is what Jesus was talking about, because it's a super tiny seed and it's a giant tree that's like 40 feet tall. But even, even if Jesus was talking about French's mustard, right? Even if he was talking about ordinary spice mustard, it's still a tiny seed that becomes one of the greatest shrubs or small trees in the garden. 
So either way, what is Jesus talking about? The point is, these little tiny, humble beginnings grow into something big that blows your mind, and birds begin to nest in it. It begins to give life to the ecosystem. It begins to have a, uh, an unusual influence to those around. And Jesus says this about faith. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He's saying just a little faith can have a big impact. You're going to give home to others. Birds will nest in your branches, right? You're going to be giving life that spills over and impacts not just your family, but your neighbors, your workplace, your city, your country. That is the vision of wisdom coming into our hearts and beginning to take new ground. Small beginnings and a big impact. Jesus is saying, this is what it's going to look like in your life and in my life as we have faith in him, as we trust him as the source of true wisdom. And so I want to call you to that glorious vision that this is what God wants for your life. And the more you trust him, the more you'll impact those around you. The really cool thing about the Matthew 13 little parable about the birds nesting in the trees is this is an echo of the prophecies that we saw in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was talking about these worldwide empires, right? So Jesus is basically saying just a little bit of faith here and the gospel, God's people are going to be like a worldwide empire, It's a multi-ethnic, multi-tribe, multi-national empire, right? I don't think he's talking about just one nation state here. He's talking about the church, all God's people, all over time, all places impacting the world, bringing life to others. Others will begin to nest in the branches. So as we take in wisdom, as we trust in Jesus, we will take new ground morally and culturally. And again, remember here the progress um, I, I find this a lot. A lot of times guys are struggling with taking ground morally with sexual immorality in their own life. And they're saying, you know what I want to do? I want to skip over this problem and I want to dream big. I want to conquer the world. And I just want to really encourage you. Start with what you are dealing with. Start with what God is challenging you to in your own life, in your own circle. Say, God, I want to obey you in, in my own circle, in my own family. I want to live a life of ordinary faithfulness, a quiet life of obedience, and then I'll have something to impact the world with. So as we wrap up, again, the big idea is that we are to desperately seek wisdom. Desperately seek wisdom. We need wisdom. We should be hungry for it. Uh, We're like a car that cannot run without oil. We cannot run without God's wisdom. He's the source. And as he comes into our life, he's going to change our heart As he changes our heart, that's going to change our behavior. And as our behavior changes, step by step, that's going to impact the world and make an oversized impact on the world around us. Jesus had one more parable in Matthew 13 about desperate seeking. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is also like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. What he's telling us is is that when we come to recognizing the fear, awe, and wonder of a gracious God that would love us and adopt us into our family, everything else is just going to like fall in comparison. We're going to sell everything else and go and buy that field. 
He's, he's saying, we're going to desperately seek that. We're going to say, that's what I want. That's what I need. I can't live without Jesus. And if you seek him, you will find him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are shaping us and changing us and teaching us your wisdom day after day. We pray that we would be receptive to it, that we would have ears to hear, that we would lean in and, and pay attention to what you're telling us, that you would be pleasant to our soul, that we would seek you desperately, that you would be our treasure. Thank you that you love us and gave yourself for us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.